Hello and welcome to the Institute for Government. I'm Emma Norris, the Deputy Director at IFG. I'm delighted to welcome you all here today for the launch of our spring edition of Performance Tracker in partnership with SIPFA, where we'll be talking about the pressures on public services ahead of the budget. And let's just take a moment to think through those pressures. We've got already stretched workforces stuck in a cycle of industrial action over pay disputes. The NHS has just suffered its worst crisis in a generation as winter pressures have combined with long-standing problems in adult social care, hospitals and primary care. We've seen yet more policing scandals in the Met and elsewhere that have further damaged trust in policing and teacher training numbers are at crisis levels. Um, so we're going to kick off the event with Nick Davies, our Director of Public Services, who's going to talk us through the state of public services at the moment, particularly the kind of impact of high inflation, the effects of the autumn statement, and what we might expect from the forthcoming budget. Um, I'm delighted to then have responses from Stephen Morgan, the Shadow Minister for Schools, and Aileen Murphy, a professor at Durham University Business School, and who is formerly a director at the NAO, where she focused on local government. We're then going to have some discussion amongst the panel um, before opening up to questions from the audience. Um, if you're in the room, you'll be able to put your hand up as normal. If you're joining us online, then please do send in questions via Slido anytime from now, and I will make sure I take questions from you too. If you're tweeting the event, then please do use the hashtag performance tracker. Um, so before I go to Nick um, to kick us off, I'm very pleased to have some opening remarks from Jeffrey Matsu, the chief economist at SIPFA. Um, Jeffrey, over to you. Well, thanks very much uh, to Emma and the IFG for hosting this event. Um, this is our seventh year running that SIPFA is partnering with the IFG in um, producing the performance tracker. And we thank all of you for coming today and engaging with us. Um, tracking performance matters because we all care very deeply about public services and how, they're, um, how taxpayers' funds are being utilized. Um, while the focus next month will be much around how much is being spent and who to the funds are going to, maximizing value, efficiency, and effectiveness in that spend is just as important. To say that the public finances today are stretched would be an understatement. Inflation is high, growth prospects are low, political turmoil has eroded the public's trust in government, and it hasn't been helpful that there's been this rapid, fast revolving door of policy initiatives and ministers um, that hasn't particularly encouraged long-term thinking or investment that the UK desperately needs. Public services therefore are creaking under that enormous um, confluence of those pressures. The Prime Minister has announced and promised to tackle the NHS waiting times but we do have to ask, what about other service areas, such as the ailing criminal justice system or the decay in neighborhood services? And even where budgets have been maintained, higher costs and demand pressures um, entail trade-offs, and we have to recognize those trade-offs in an explicit way, because a focus on statutory responsibilities has meant less and less spending on everything else. And if we look at our own communities, we see that a third of libraries across the, uh, England have shut down, and that 14% of bus networks have closed. The Chancellor, too, has made his pledges uh, to address the backlogs and workforce pressures. He has focused on these four E's of enterprise, employment, economic growth, and everywhere, referring to leveling up. 
But as I said, we need to focus on sustained investment rather than short-term funding in responses to crises that we're facing today and a strong focus on reform. A key theme in this year's report is that money alone isn't going to be the panacea and that we must strengthen awareness of organizational capacities. Those can be things like partnerships, strong leadership and vision. All of those things need to come together alongside funding. And that layers onto the effective management of financial resources, especially during times of heightened uncertainty and complexities. So having said all of that, managing public finances today is important for SIPFA, it's important for our profession, but it's really important for all of us because it helps us manage these critical services and making them accessible to people where they need it and when they need it. And so with that, I hand it over to Nick, who will talk about our spring update. Thank, Thank you very much. Thanks, Jeff. So there's a huge amount I could discuss uh, across the nine services that we cover, but I'd just like to focus on two cross-cutting issues in my opening remarks. Uh, so firstly, the impact of the spending decisions made in the autumn statement at the end of last year, and second, the approach taken by the government to strike actions and the implications of that for public service performance. So starting with the autumn statement, Broadly, it was as generous as when the spending was originally announced in the 2021 spending review, with the additional cash uh, largely offsetting the higher than expected inflation. Uh, the big winners were the NHS, uh, local government via increased funding for adult social care, uh, and school, which all received additional money. However, even these services are unlikely to be able to return to pre-pandemic performance levels by the next election. And critically, pre-pandemic performance levels was in most cases quite a lot worse than in 2010. Uh, so why won't they have enough even with that increased money? So first, the 2021 spending review to support COVID recovery was quite reasonably front-loaded, uh, with a big increase in spending in 2022-2023 this financial year, but very little extra in the next two financial years. But the NHS in particular has not been able to fully convert that additional funding and the additional staffing that's come with it into increased activity, and it's going to find it even harder to improve performance with tighter funding over the next two years. Second, uh, an increased share of funding is going to be needed to pay for higher pay awards if the government does use higher pay awards uh, to bring uh, strike action to an end. And third, performance in most services has just got substantially worse over the last three years, uh, and it's reversing that is going to require considerable effort. In some ways, the situation in prisons and courts is worse. Uh, they didn't receive any additional funding uh, in the autumn statement, and that will mean there's uh, very slow progress in addressing the backlogs that have built up in courts, uh, which on a like-for-like -like basis are twice as bad as they were pre-pandemic. Uh, and the prison service is going to find it very hard to safely house the increase uh, in prisoner numbers that are expected uh, in coming years. Indeed, they're already resorting to using police cells to house some of those people. Given the widespread industrial unrest and how poor public service performance currently is and will continue to be in the run-up to the next election, it's unclear whether those current funding levels are going to prove to be politically sustainable for the government. 
Uh, and sorry, Stephen, but I think the situation is probably going to be even harder for whoever it is who forms the next government. Um, if the autumn statements uh, spending plans for 2025-2026 onwards were replicated in a spending review in 2025, it would be less generous than every spending review announcement since 2002, except for 2010 and 2015. And critically, the 2015 uh, spending review proved to be undeliverable, with the government having to put in additional money to public services to deal with poor performance. Moving on to strikes, I think it's fair to say that we are quite sceptical about the government's strategy for dealing with those, uh, or at least what its strategy was until uh, Wednesday uh, this week. Uh, so problems with recruitment, uh, retention uh, and morale are central uh, to the poor performance of public services. The NHS uh, vacancy rate is at record levels. Uh, 50,000 people left the adult social care workforce in the last financial year, and teacher training numbers are at crisis levels. Uh, and across public services, rates of sickness and absence uh, remain much higher than pre-pandemic. We warned in the autumn that substantially below inflation pay offers uh, would exacerbate these staffing problems, and unfortunately that is exactly what has come to pass. Rather than seeking to resolve these disputes quickly, the government refused until Wednesday uh, to meaningfully discuss pay, and then it only did so, or is doing so, with nurses, and it introduced the strikes bill. Whatever the theory behind that approach, the reality is that it wasn't working uh, with damaging consequences for the performance of public services. In the short term, it's uh, extended the length of those disputes and therefore the disruption uh, caused. Uh, and rather than discouraging others from striking, it probably contributed to the 98% of junior doctors on a 77% turnout who voted for strike action earlier this week. In the medium term, the government's approach has probably uh, undermined confidence uh, in the pay review body process, meaning that there's a greater likelihood of pay disputes leading to strike action uh, in the future. And in the long term, if you limit the ability of staff to strike, if you pay them less than they think they are worth or what they can get in the private sector, then they are going to withdraw their labour in other ways, uh, either by quitting or not by not taking those jobs uh, in the first place. Unfortunately, there are no easy options for the government or whoever forms the government after the next election. Uh, refusing to raise pay offers will make it harder for the government to address backlogs and other performance <coughs> issues. Raising pay but asking services to fund that from existing budgets will likely necessitate painful cuts elsewhere because there isn't really any meaningful fat to cut in public service budgets at the moment. And similarly, increasing public service budgets to accommodate higher pay might require funding that through increased taxes, higher borrowing, or cuts to other parts of public spending, none of which will be pain free. So all in all, that leaves some very difficult decisions for Jeremy Hunt ahead of next month's budget. Thank you, Nick. Stephen, I'm going to come to you for a first response to, to what Nick's just outlined. Thank you, Emma, and to the IFG for hosting us today. Um, and thank you for the work that you do to improve 
government effectiveness through research and analysis. Um, as we've seen today in this research, uh, there are clearly some challenges that the government of today and, and the government of tomorrow will need to address. Now, I must confess I've not read all 158 pages of the performance <laughs> tracker yet, but I have a long journey back to Portsmouth Harbour this afternoon, and I promise you that I will do by then. And thanks, Nick, for running through some of the key findings. As someone that's worked in local government and in the voluntary sector and someone that's commissioned public services, it's really clear to me that these findings show the impacts on our public services when government is not run competently and when policy is not driven by evidence but instead by ideology and often for selfish political aims. As Nick identified, too little was done to prepare our public services for the challenges that we faced this winter, in large part due to a decade of sticking plaster politics and policies that have uh, seen, I think, the political instability that we've seen in, in recent months, and administrative paralysis caused by the ongoing drama in the Conservative Party. On health, this has resulted in elective waiting lists at more than 7 million, and bed occupancy, as we've heard, above 95%. Now, lots of my constituents are finding it impossible to see a GP and a dentist as I've seen firsthand from uh, looking through my post bag and indeed visiting GP practices and my local hospital. And in an emergency, there's no guarantee that an ambulance, of course, will arrive on time if one arrives at all. On crime, we've now got a backlog of 60,000 cases in the Crown Courts and over 350,000 in the Magistrates' Courts, leaving dangerous criminals going unprosecuted. And I think this is a direct result, again, of government underfunding, with 260 courts closing in the past 12 years. Now, specifically on schools, I think we're seeing the impact of government implementing a catch-up programme worth just a third of what its own Education Recovery Commission thought would be necessary to allow schools to make up for lost learning. The performance tracker uh, illuminated, I think, some massive problems with recruitment, retention and morale of staff, and I think these are central to the performance of public services. And this is no different for our schools. And in my role as Shadow Schools Minister, I get the opportunity to speak with school leaders, school support staff and teachers on a weekly basis. And I'm really struck by the real um, downbeat sort of nature, uh, the, the real sort of uh, pessimism that they have right now for the jobs that they do and real feelings and concerns around workload, pay and conditions. So to anyone paying attention, the current strikes were not surprising and I think they were entirely preventable. But rather than seeking to quickly resolve these disputes, the government has refused to meaningfully discuss, pay and introduce the strikes minimum service levels bill. So in conclusion, as the performance tracker report states, returning services to pre-pandemic performance levels, uh, never mind those of 2010, is a daunting task for any government. However, there is a precedent of such an improvement. And as the report says, Labour demonstrated that in the early 2000s, turning around comparatively bad issues facing the NHS then. But this required sustained investment and evidence-based reform. For too long, our economy and our public services and our communities have suffered from the sticking plaster politics that epitomised the last 13 years of Conservative government. Simply put, nothing in this country seems to work anymore. I do think we've got broken Britain. The Conservatives have broken it, yet they're too distracted by the chaos of their own making to fix it. As Rachel Reeves has said, we shouldn't forget that Britain has extraordinary potential for growth, for our economy to be fairer, greener and more dynamic, and for our public services to be the envy of the world again. 
And as Keir set out this morning, we need national missions to bring confidence, hope and a future back for our country. We need a government that matches the ambitions of the British people and a government prepared to deliver it. So I look forward to the discussion today. Thank Brilliant. you. Thank you, Stephen. Look forward to talking about Labour's plans in a bit more detail in questions. Aileen, over to you. Uh, thanks. And um, when you look at the performance tracker report, uh, it does seem like there are problems everywhere, but they're typified, um, if you look underneath them, by um, continued weaknesses in the way that policy is delivered, policy is implemented, and public services are funded. Now, the first big missing bit um, is any appreciation uh, in a number of major public services of the interdependencies between services. I think you can see this most clearly with, uh, uh, with the problems in the NHS, when, when we first had the issues about tremendous delays in A&E and ambulances sitting outside, and we all saw the film, and poor Hugh Pym dashing up and down the country to different hospitals. <laughs> I don't know why, because they all look the same. You, I mean, you could just stay in one, couldn't you? Um, but the, 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 the key important point is that that discussion very quickly narrowed down to there are too many elderly people in hospital and we should fling open the front door and just get them to leave. But that neglects the whole interdependency between community health, district nursing, GP services, a lack of outreach from, from GPs and helping to maintain people in the community and the problems that have been for years in domiciliary care and getting it properly funded and, pro and uh, a proper domiciliary care workforce that's valued in what it does and supporting people at home with long-term conditions. So the interdependencies between services are incredibly important. And you can see another example in children's social care with the number of children that have gone into care, <clears throat> which is partly due to the disinvestment from support services in the community to families. So if families aren't being supported, what happens is people devolve to the most expensive part of any public service. So rather than an elderly person being visited at home and being supported there, etc., etc., um, you, they end up with weeks in an acute unit where they don't need to be, where it costs a fortune and somebody else isn't. So we need to think very carefully about the interdependencies and, and develop systems thinking when we're thinking about a problem in public services and analyse it properly. What's the real issue that's going on here? And not snatch at the first solution that comes along. And the second point I wanted to make is about um, everybody says there's not enough money, and there, there probably isn't enough money, let's face it, because there never is. But what there is, is an awful lot of money wasted in different ways. And one of the, the points, again, I'd note, is just the first point being expressed in a slightly different way. If you disinvest from early intervention and from support services in the community and non-statutory services like those for, uh, for, for youth and for people who are not in education, employment or training, then um, you, you'll again get people getting into trouble, offending, ending up in the prison system where it costs us some, anywhere between 40 and 50,000 pounds a year to keep somebody for a number of years, put them out back into the community in a worse state than they were at the beginning. So the way that we spend money is not outcome focused and it's not based on a proper evaluation of what would actually work. And there's a variety of different reasons for that. But certainly the churn of ministers in departments doesn't help, but it's not just that. It's about uh, every minister looking for that single silver bullet that will get them publicity and will work. And public services are complex interrelationships and silver bullet theories never work. And the last point I'll make, if I have a last minute, right? Um, what we've tended to get in, in previous years is something that my old boss used to call the porpoise method of public funding. So what would happen would be a service like adult social care, for instance, in 1819. It was gradually running down. There wasn't enough money. It's signed the uh, service was creaking. So what did um, DCLG invent? Suddenly, you had an adult social care one-off grant. 
brilliant. So the service went up a little bit, and then that money was withdrawn, and then it went down. So what we're seeing is this porpoise level of, of funding, which means that there isn't long-term sustainable plans uh, based on a proper local government finance system to actually support public services into the future. Now, at this point, uh, somebody's going to say, what about levelling up? Now, the point I would make is from 2010 onwards, uh, local governments lost somewhere around 29% of its spending power in revenue terms. What it's getting back from levelling up is tiddly little bits of capital funding with loads of strings attached. Those two things are not the same. And if you want to have good quality public services, they have to be paid for and planned for over the medium and longer term. Thank you very much. Thank you, Aileen. Um, Nick, I want to come to you first in questions. I think one of the really challenging things that our analysis has shown is that the NHS has really struggled to turn increased funding um, and staff into increased outputs. What are some of the reasons um, for that struggle and what might we do about it? I think that is the, the million dollar question. And indeed, we are doing a new um, research project at the moment looking at that in some detail. I think we, we can tell what some of the factors are involved in that. So the question is how those are interacting together. So there is some evidence, for example, that people are being admitted are less healthy than they were before and therefore are staying longer, uh, which means it is harder to clear beds. I think there are questions about the workforce, uh, the extent to which uh, kind of higher sickness rates, whether there has been any withdrawal of discretionary efforts, uh, whether in some cases they are less risk averse and less willing to take on higher patient caseloads than pre-pandemic. Uh, clearly, there are questions about the wider system, for example, the role of kind of social care or community care um, in, in the rate of discharges. There are a lot of the most of the problems are in hospitals themselves rather than kind of out uh, in the wider system. There are questions about about the level of management within the NHS. So the NHS is drastically undermanaged versus the private sector and versus other health systems. And a lot of these questions about how you best allocate funding and staffing are management questions. Uh, and similarly, the historic underinvestment in capital means that we have far fewer kind of scanners for diagnostics than basically any other comparable system. And that is clearly also going to cause problems. So I think that we know what some of the contributory factors are. What we don't know is the kind of the balance of those and how they are interacting with each other. But I hope to have more of an answer for you <laughs> on that in a few months. Watch this space. And um, I also wanted to ask about the pandemic. I mean, it would be very easy for us to, you know, kind of set out this, um, you know, negative kind of vision of public services and really say the, the pandemic was the kind of turning point. To what extent is that true? To what extent are we here because of the pandemic? And to what extent is it something else? I mean, we are exactly where we are now. We wouldn't be here without the pandemic, but the pandemic made things worse, definitely. But in most cases, public services had been getting worse since 2010 anyway. Uh, and in fact, I think it's pretty much only um, schools that we judge you could make a case that performance was as good on the eve of the pandemic as it was uh, in 2010. You know, we had been missing basically all of the major NHS targets for years uh, before the pandemic started. Uh, the uh, Crown Court backlog had been growing in advance of the pandemic starting. There were these widespread problems around kind of workforces and recruitment and retention all across public services. So yes, the pandemic made things worse, but it was building on a already pretty bad situation in many cases. Thanks, Nick. 
Stephen, I want to come to you now and talk a little bit about what Labour would do to tackle some of these challenges. Keir Starmer today set out his, his five missions that would kind of uh, set the vision for a Labour government. Um, I think no fewer than three of those uh, were focused on public services. It'd be great if we could start with schools and you could talk a little bit about what Labour would do on schools and particularly perhaps how it would kind of tackle this crisis in, um, in teacher recruitment. So as you say, Emma, the, the five national missions will uh, modernise our economy, improve our public services and I think deliver a government that, that takes seriously the challenges that our country faces and prepare our country that, that's fit for the future. Um, <clears throat> the challenges we face in schools are immense. You, you know, we in terms of the uplift of the two billion extra for schools, that only gets it back to 2010 levels. Uh, you won't see that till 2025. There are predictions that they'll still see uh, nine in 10 school budgets in deficit budgets. Mm -hmm. Look at school buildings. One in six schools have buildings that are at risk to children's lives. There's not been a condition survey of the school estate since 2019. If you look at the record numbers of people that are leaving the profession, both teachers and school support staff, I think we've got a crisis in, in teacher recruitment and retention. And then when I visit schools on a weekly basis, I hear firsthand some of the real challenges that children and families are facing in a school the other day where a child was coming to school with damp clothes because the parents can't afford to put the heating on or... Uh, to use a tumble dryer, another school where a child was sharing the coat of her sister that day. I mean, this is the poverty that we see in our country as a result of the failure of, of this government. In terms of what Labour would do, <clears throat> I mean, the, the thing that strikes me from the conversations I have with teachers and school support, support staff on a daily, weekly basis, is they want a government they can trust again, that, that changes the narrative about schools and those that work in public services. Now, that sounds really easy, doesn't it? But actually, that's quite a task, I think, and it means changing the narrative, and it means changing the way that we work with those in the public service. Now, I think we need to see a, fa a fair pay deal. We need to see more agile working mm -hmm. in the teaching profession. I want to see reform of accountability because that comes up as a regular theme as well. And I want to see more teachers in the profession. And Labour's got a commitment for 6,500 extra teachers. We want to invest in mental health support to make sure there's a dedicated mental health professional in every school. We want to make sure there's a, a mental health hub in every community. We want to reduce waiting times for CAM treatment services to under a month too. And we want to introduce free breakfast clubs in every primary school. So real practical things that I think would make a real difference to the challenges that people are facing right now. Brilliant, thank you. And of course, I've got to ask about funding and how Labour will fund its commitments. I mean, I think it's fair to say that Labour's been quite cautious so far in going beyond government spending plans. And Starmer obviously focused on kind of long-termism in the speech today, but there wasn't that much detail on, you know, how, how to pay for some of the kind of reforms that, that might be coming. Now, given how tight spending plans are, particularly from 25, 26 onwards, you know, can an incoming Labour government hope to really substantially improve public services without borrowing more or raising taxes? So I think we're really, really realistic on the sort of economy that we might inherit next year or the year after. It won't be the economy that we had in 1997. So that presents us with real challenges. But we can't, um, I think, shy away from the, the ambitions that we've got that we want to see delivered in our country. So on my brief in particular, two policy commitments that we've made already would be funded via... Um, ending the tax breaks for private schools, and then secondly, ending non-DOM status as well. So that would fund the investment in mental health, but also mm -hmm. the, the money that we'd want to see going to schools to tackle the disadvantage that we see in schools across the country. Thanks, Stephen. 
Aileen, a couple of questions for you. Mm -hmm. So um, the government has pumped lots of emergency funding into some services, a kind of cycle of crisis cash mm -hmm. repeat that we've described lots of times before in Performance Tracker. Um, this is a somewhat leading question, but is that a sensible approach to public service uh, uh, spending? And you know, how would you get better value for money? You know what? Services? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, that's what I was, um, no, I, I, I don't think so. I mean, obviously, there's always a role for, for an emergency response to an emergency situation. But to um, have a kind of role perma crisis where you're constantly reaching for emergency funding no um, so like I said what you need the spending review should do its do its job properly which is to, which is to measure what need there is and how much of that need you're going to satisfy it should set outcomes it's noticeable and um, I'm sorry Stephen you do it too a lot of politicians are just talking about inputs well yeah there's this huge problem here yes but we're spending all that money there yeah I know but what is the outcome that you're aiming for and how are you going to to fund services to meet that outcome and what's the role of government um, the voluntary service and of citizens as well because it's a, a tripartite thing here so um, one of the problems is that money is very short term at the moment and if, if you don't mind me going on um, the um, the uh, enhanced discharge money 250 million pounds announced at the start of the winter for people to spend uh, to facilitate discharge into the community. Still not allocated. And I don't know about you, but today is the 23rd of February. In another month, it's not going to be winter. Um, there's another 500 million floating around somewhere. Now, if you had taken that 750 million pounds and you had said to service leaders and the NHS and community services in the summer, what should we do with this money to make sure winter isn't as bad as we think it's going to be? That would have been a much better way of spending that money. And you might actually have spent it. Because one of the interesting things to look at is um, underspends, particularly on the capital side in government. It is actually having quite a lot of difficulty getting money out of the door. Brilliant. Thanks, Aileen. And I also wanted to ask about local government. You led on local mm -hmm. government at the NAA for many years. Um, how sustainable do you think gov local government finances are at the moment? Are we likely to see more local authorities? How, sus you know, how sustainable? It's a really good question. Um, it depends how you define it. But if we define financial sustainability of a local authority as being having enough money to meet its statutory needs, I think when you look at the fact that 1.3 million people have an unmet need for adult social care, we can say that they're holding, holding their own, but maybe things are slipping a bit. And you can see in the, the McAllister review of children's social care, uh, some of the same issues there. So, but then if you look at the very sort of top end of it, how many authorities have we had that have issued a Section 1-1 report? Very few, because local authority finance directors are brilliant at managing the finances. Now, the effort that goes into that, balancing the books and keeping that entity alive, is effort and time and resource that's not going into developing really good quality public services. So the answer is sort of. Um, I know it doesn't sound very scientific, but that's my answer on that one. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to open up um, to questions from the audience now. I'll take questions in groups of three. Can I ask you to um, say your name, which organisation you're from? And I always say this, but could it be a question rather than a comment, please? Um, we've got mics coming around. So I've got one here, got one here, and one here. Thank you. Is somebody else first? No, you're first. Oh, right. I would like to pick up from the last choice you've given me on bed blocking. I just ask your name and... Oh, sorry. Jack my name's Jacqueline Castles. I'm not from an organisation. Thank you. Um, now, it's obviously part of the real problem is lack of strategic thinking. I would say particularly since Cameron's tap dancing, <coughs> but it goes back a long way before that. Now, to be specific, the NHS got rid of convalescent homes, which obviously were extremely useful. 
to transfer people into. And they did it short term uh, in order to release the funds. Uh, certainly I know about central London, and so the properties were worth a lot of money. A lot of those were sold off, but nobody really thought, although they had the figures then, that the population is aging, people get more frail, also family structure has altered, and so on. So I probably just ask, I mean, how long do you expect a government to think ahead? And can you pick up the point about bed blocking and what you may see as the future? Thank you very much. Okay, and I think we had one over here. Yeah, there we go. Thank you. I'm Neil Carmichael, a former Conservative MP, a kind of a Brexit uh, victim, if you like. Uh, but I'm currently uh, chair of the Association of Dental Groups. So it's really good to hear Stephen observe the difficulties of accessing dentistry. Uh, there are really two problems. One is recruitment, and that's all about dental schools being capped. It's also about... Um, the GDC being unable to really afford to implement the ORE, Overseas Registration Examinations and so forth, which is putting a real pressure on uh, all dentists and all practices and all groups in terms of delivery. But there's something else at work here, and that is the NHS contract, which is essentially putting dentists off from participating in a public service. That's the bottom line. So I've really got two questions, if I may. One is, what can we do to improve the training of dentists and the access of dentists? Because that's an education question. Um, and I think it goes right to the heart of an issue, broadly speaking, connected to NHS delivery. And then the second question is, what can we do to... Uh, and using dentistry as an example, improve the actual systems in the NHS so they are more efficient and don't put people off, but rather encourage them to do what they should be doing. Because the outcome of all of this is we've got 60% of children not seeing dentists regularly. Uh, we've got about 6 million people who haven't seen a dentist at all for any length, for a decent length of time, and so on. And Stephen knows that because his constituency is a classic example of a dental desert. Thank you. And then one last question there. Uh, Sophie Huskerson from the Daily Mirror newspaper. Um, so I kind of wanted to talk about pay and uh, strikes. Um, so we saw this week that the independent pay review body will be recommending a 3.5% rise for the next financial year. Um, I just wondered if, kind of Stephen, from your perspective, what sort of figure would Labour want to see? And just more to the panel, what figure could be realistic? Um, I mean, to make people happier, because obviously people aren't particularly happy with the 3.5% suggestion. And sort of on the back of that, I know you said, that Nick, that faith is being lost in the independent pay review body, and it's widely reported that it's not particularly independent when the parameters are set by government. What could be a better mechanism so people can actually have trust in whatever figure comes. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, I think let's start with the pay question, actually. Stephen, I'm going to come to you on what figure would Labour like? We heard 3.5%. What would you go for? Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be for me to set a figure here today. Um, I'm not open to um, the information that government has. I've not um, it, you know, engaged with the views of ministers on this. What's really clear to me is that strike action is a failure of this government and not to negotiate in a meaningful way. And, and I regularly talk to teachers and the teaching unions on a 
weekly basis and you know they're they are fed up that the engagement's been tokenistic window dressing and i think we do need to find a settlement once and for all but it's not for me to do that negotiation uh, the education secretary should get around the table and find a deal uh, that works for teachers across the country they are burnt out and they're overworked last night i listened into uh, middle leaders across our country and spoke to eight different middle leaders only one of them wanted to go on to be a head teacher and i think that's the challenge that that the education system faces right now thank you and nick aileen what would a realistic figure be so look we don't have a, a house view on what the right number is but clearly if you are in this financial year offering average pay offers of around five percent when inflation is double that and next year three and a half when inflation i think is predicted to be around six percent mm -hmm. then that's a pretty meaningful cut in the take-home pay of staff I think whatever the figure is, it always seemed quite unlikely that the government was going to be able to resolve these by refusing to talk about pay in any way at all. And as I think, as the RCN have shown this week, even a reasonable offer to discuss pay was enough for them to postpone the planned strikes of next week. So it always seemed that there just needed to be a way of getting around the table and thrashing it out. In terms of the pay review bodies, as you say, they are not independent. The government sets their remit uh, and then can decide whether to accept their recommendations at the end or not and has rejected them before. But I do think the principle of having expert advice to mediate between two sets of competing interests is a good one. But it's no good the government saying, holding their hands up and saying, hey, this is what the independent guy said, there's nothing we can do about it. <coughs> Using it to bash the unions is particularly helpful. And you've seen lots of unions have said to they won't engage with it in the future. Ultimately, the government needs to find a way of reaching agreements with unions and the millions of people that they represent. Whether it's through pay review bodies or another way, it is going to have to find a way of compromising and bringing expert advice into that. Aileen, did you want to come in on that? Well, I'm sorely tempted just to whap out a number there. Well, how would I know? Well, all I would say is that there's a heck of a lot of difference between 2% and the rate of inflation, right? Mm. So there's an awful lot to talk about. And I think that's, that's really what uh, Nick was saying as well. But uh, on the question of the peer review bodies, it's just a mechanism. If it doesn't work, let's try something else. I mean, let's be pragmatic about it. You know, there haven't always been peer review bodies and they've come and gone um, and there might be time to try something else. I want to ask all of you the question on how long a government should be willing to look ahead. Um, <laughs> Nick, I'm going to come to you first. So I suppose the most obvious answer is that the government already does look ahead through spending reviews, which tend to be a three-year process, which seems a reasonable timeline, both to give some sort of medium-term uh, certainty whilst acknowledging that a lot can happen uh, over the course of a whole parliament. I think part of the issue is that that doesn't feed through into the settlements that other parts of government get. You know, like local government in particular <coughs> often finds out with you know, a month to go before the start of a financial year, how much money it's going to have. And that's, you know, as I said, that's not a good way to plan. Uh, and similarly with, you know, the, the emergency funding uh, that comes in, you know, 
in the end, you can't sustainably raise wages of social workers, for example, with a one-off pay. So you're going to have to use more expensive agency staff, which is going to be less efficient. I thought one of the more actually intriguing things uh, in the missions announcement today by Keir Starmer was the suggestion of longer-term uh, pay settlements for local government. So there wasn't much more than that, but I think that is an interesting idea. Yeah, and three to four year settlements um, aren't, haven't been uncommon. It's just in the last few years we've got down to single, uh, single years for local government, which is obviously not a very efficient way of doing it. How far should governments think ahead? I think that um, there should be at least some part of government, and that I would point to the Cabinet Office and the Treasury in particular here, that should be thinking 20 years ahead. So we've taken, taken account of demographic trends, trends in innovation, etc. I mean, you can't foresee everything, can you? I don't know what chat GPT is, but I've got this awful <laughs> feeling I'm going to have to find out at some point. Um, uh, as a sort of horizon scanning kind of part of it. But in practical terms, they should be looking at least four to five years ahead and thinking about what do we, where do we want the country to be in four to five years' time? That old Ronald Reagan question, do you feel better off today than you did five years ago? In terms of convalescent homes, they're coming back, you know, they're, just, they're called step-down facilities mm. or re-ablement uh, <laughs> re homes. So there is, a, there is a need there and facilities are filling it, but it'd be better if it was done on a properly planned basis as opposed to uh, ad hoc, we don't, we don't want this person to be in this acute setting any longer, but they can't go home. If we'd actually thought about that five years ago, we could have created a, a network of facilities and paid for them. Thank you. Stephen, same question to you. I suppose I'm particularly interested in, you know, if you, if you do win the election, you go in, you take on the school's <coughs> brief. Of course, you know, you want to look ahead a term, perhaps even two terms. How will you do that in practice? Because, you know, what we see at the Institute for Government is it's very easy to say that you're going to focus on the long term. But when you enter office, actually, the pressures are in the short term, crises, immediate priorities. How will yeah. you as a minister keep that focus on the long term? So I've always wanted to say this. I agree with what Nick just said. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I do think we uh, need to look long term but the politics and the way that our country works doesn't allow that easily really and there are to be honest with you so many um, policy areas where across the political divide we do agree mm -hmm. but we don't find what we have in common mm -hmm. and I think social care is a good example of that where we aren't sort of finding what unites us and then you know working cross party to find solutions so, so I would always advocate that as a constituency MP um, I mean Keir's missions today are measurable and the long-term goals so I think he's setting out the direction of travel he wants the party to take that will be the backbone of our manifesto and I certainly think it's really important that we have clear short-term goals to, to fix the challenges the country faces. Keir's been very clear that we've got sticking, um, <coughs> excuse me, sticking plaster politics at the moment, but then also an overall goal of where we want to be and where we want to take this country. And I think at the moment we've got a government that doesn't have a vision for Britain and that's our country's loss. Thank you. And who feels equipped to answer the dentist's question? <coughs> Do you want me to have a Please go? Because you. you sort of directed it at me directly. So, so I'm conscious that, that the system we've got now was a contract that came in under the last Labour government in, in 2006. I've personally uh, campaigned for significant reform of that contract because in Portsmouth what we see is, uh, as you say, a dental desert where it's extremely difficult to see an NHS dentist and that's having an impact on, on well-being or on mental health and, and children's health in particular. Um, you know, it's perverse that there have been certain targets that have driven certain behaviours in the dental um, service. Uh, it's bizarre that, frankly, the dentist gets paid the same amount to do one filling as they do five fillings. So in my own patch, where there are significant health needs, 
why would you want to work in Portsmouth? So I'm absolutely mindful of that. What I'm really conscious of is not enough people talk about dentistry, and I think it is at breaking point. Um, so I will certainly continue to do what I can with the BDA and others to, to lobby for change so that we do see reform of the dental contract and, and real progress in improving dental services. Can I just pick up on the kind of the wider question about mm. like sure. NHS management yeah. and a, I guess a couple of things. So firstly, to reiterate what I said earlier, that as a country and particularly in the NHS, we have drastically underinvested in management capacity and it's going to be very difficult to fix any of these problems without that. And that will make the lives of frontline clinicians much, much harder and more frustrating and more of them will want to leave. And frankly, they take a long time to train and are very expensive. <coughs> There's probably much more management talent and capacity in the wider economy that we could tap into uh, if we wanted. The other thing to add, and it kind of speaks to the missions point, is about the system of targets that the NHS is subject to. Now, I think there is good evidence for the efficacy of some targets and the four hour A&E waiting time target in particular is probably the single best evidence target we have. Like the evidence is pretty clear, it does save lives. The problem is that there are scores and scores of other targets that the NHS is subject to and the broader evidence on targets is that that type of system is quite good for raising minimum standards but not for driving excellence and if you want to see kind of world-beating performance then we probably need to kind of simplify and rethink the kind of system of uh, accountability and the incentives that we are setting for the NHS. Thanks Nick. Aileen, you wanted to come in? Yeah, I, I think it's uh, the dental services, one of the, the bits of the public service which doesn't get enough attention. And I think one of the huge wastes of public money and bad outcomes for people, there are 15,000 children under the age of seven who go into the hospital to have baby teeth, decayed baby teeth removed under general anaesthetic, which is a completely utter waste of money apart from anything else. So one of the things I would do is a very simple public health measure. Every child should get a free toothbrush and toothpaste, tube of toothpaste, at whatever point they come into contact with public services. And that we should reinstate the school dental service. Uh, I don't know if anybody here is as old as me, but I do remember the school dental service back in the 1960s in Scotland. It was um, a massive investment in public health that, that dealt with a real need and offset hugely expensive problems later. So we cut these things at our peril, and I think all our mums were right when they said a stitch in time saves nine. Thanks, Eileen. I'm going to take a few questions um, from our online audience now. I think this first one I'm going to give to um, you, Nick, and Aileen, if she wants to come in. Despite evidence in successes performance trackers and indeed elsewhere, there's a persistent narrative in the media and politics that there's a lot of inefficiency and waste in the NHS, local government and elsewhere in the public sector. How can that myth be tackled? So, I think there is some inefficiency in the NHS, but it's not normally in the places that headlines, I'm sorry to say, quite a lot of politicians identify it. And indeed, I think that narrative is why you've seen, or certainly post 2010, you saw a massive cut in the number of overall managers and in senior managers. But actually, those are critical staff for <coughs> making sure that services are running efficiently. Um, and I think, similarly, as a, about the, the, the targets point, that if you tell from above uh, those leading trusts exactly what they need to report on, that is going to shape the service that they deliver and gives them far less scope and flexibility to change those services in response to their local demand and to innovate. So, you know, it's, there clearly are some inefficiencies, but the way we try and drive out those inefficiencies usually makes the problem worse. Thank you. 
Hmm. Yeah. It's a tricky one. I think the, the um, you know, if you think about the fact that local government is still more or less working after all these years of, of uh, reductions, you've got an efficiency gain, but you've got an effectiveness loss. So there's a balance between the two things. And I think one of the biggest wastes is delay. So delay in assessments, repeated assessments, one hand not knowing what the other hand is doing. And it would be those kind of areas that I'd look at for, um, uh, for, for cutting things out. For instance, if you're on council tax benefit, that isn't rolled into UC. So you've got basically two welfare systems working. And then if you've got adult social care as well, there's a third set of assessments. So there's a whole lot of inefficiency there, but kind of spread across different public services. That's it. Thank you. And Stephen, a question about the five missions. Um, so Starmer announced the five missions today. He said that public services don't just need better funding, they need reform too, but he didn't offer much detail on what that looks like. Um, so what do you think uh, reform looks like? Yeah, I mean, obviously, we might have an election next year. It, it might not be until January 2025. So there's a lot of detail to follow from mm -hmm. Labour. And, and we're thinking through what might be on the pledge card, what might be in the manifesto, what might be in the programme for government through legislation. Um, but I think he's absolutely right. We've got to restore our public services by investing in them but also seeing reform and obviously Wes is doing some of that in terms of the NHS we will say that in due course on and schools and there's other areas of policy that we will do uh, more on that but, but much more to come uh, we've just recently relaunched our national policy forum which is the mechanism by which people can feed into policy development and what I want to do is make sure that that's evidence-based uh, because too often I think we hear from ministers that they make decisions based on evidence and, and there's little proof that there is. So I think mm -hmm. it's really important we've got robust evidence-based policy development as we head towards the next election. Yeah. And when you say in due course, I mean, do you have any sense of when there is going to be more detail around some of the missions that were talked about a little less today, and particularly education and opportunity? Yeah, so I think we will get to a place where we will announce very specific policies at our conference in September. There will be the conclusion of the latest round of the MPF process this month. The next month we are mm -hmm. doing a series of roundtables online for people to engage, written submissions too. So certainly in the next six months there will be real sort of meat on the bones. Brilliant, thank you. Right, I think we've got time for one more round from the audience. So I've got one here. One here and then one at the back there. Hello, thank you. I'm Nadine Smith from Social Finance. Um, just given what um, Eileen, Eileen, you said about the interdependency, interconnectedness of um, services and mm -hmm. the importance of focusing on outcomes, um, and what you have said, um, Shadow um, Minister, around uh, Stephen, around um, the, the, the kind of limitation because of the short termism of, of Parliament and government. And then, you know, and I'm just wondering, and then Keir Starmer mentioned today about thinking about the role of government, and we're here, here at the Institute for Government, so I got very excited about that. Isn't it time now for an actual fundamental rethink of the role of central government when facing local communities? We've got local communities who are telling us that they want to do things they can't. They're hampered by funding streams, by the silos of central government. They can't get communities involved in long-term outcomes focused thinking. We can't unlock innovative finance even um, when we've got dormant assets sitting there waiting to be you know, tapped into. So isn't it time, as I say, for a fundamental rethink of what the role of Whitehall is facing communities and allowing them to determine the long-term outcomes that they need to, given it's going to take 10, 20 years to turn around some of those complex challenges that were mentioned earlier? Thank you, Nadine. Andy Cowper from Health Policy Insight. Um, would the panel talk briefly about what they think the theory of change is going to be that's going to inform the next sector of 
public service reform. The NHS went through investment and reform in the 2000s decade, effectively, uh, with quite a lot of market mechanisms and contestability being brought in with Simon Stevens's philosophical input. And then the Lansley reforms brought kind of markets on steroids, greater competition, etc. Um, and when Simon Stevens was the chief executive of NHS England, he effectively completely overturned the Lansley reforms in, in quite a subtle way uh, to introduce a theory that's much more about systems and working together. What does the panel think comes next? Thank you. And then right at the back. Uh, Paul Wallace, I'm a journalist. Um, I wonder whether the panel could say something about variation in public services. Mm. There's a piece on the FT today pointing out the wide range uh, with regard to the A&E target, with, with the best performer above 90% being seen within the four hours and the worst below 50%. And it points out also that that variation has, has widened in recent years. I wonder whether that's what can be learned from that, and also whether that's also the case in other public services. Great, thank you. And I'm going to take one more um, right at the back there. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, Julian McRae from Engage Britain. Um, I was just wondering about the, um, the looking forward and how much we can look forward in the public finance um, structure. Um, before the 1997 election, um, Ken Clark famously set a, uh, a set of spending targets for the other side of the election uh, and joked afterwards that he'd never stuck to them, even though the incoming government did. Um, we had an interesting 2015 where a Conservative Party probably thought it was going to negotiate with a coalition partner in the Lib Dems and there'll be a balance between the forecasts that were looked at by the OBR. It wouldn't be such deep spending cuts again. That didn't actually happen in that case. They had to implement their own cuts. This time round, we face potentially a similar situation where cuts are stacked for conveniently in the public finances just after the next election, conceivably. Is there a way, and that politics may be inevitable, is there a way, though, that we could use some of the methods you're using in Performance Tracker to forecast forward and give the electorate, if those are the public finance forecasts that political parties have to run and stand on, what are people voting for in terms of the further decay of their services um, if that's the, the state of the public finances, as opposed to the way the OBR will do it, which is those figures add up. We won't look at the public spend implications of a public spend target number. Brilliant. Thank you. Okay, Nick, I'm going to come to you first. <laughs> um, uh, fundamental, is it time for a fundamental rethink of the role of central government um, and Whitehall, uh, its relationship with communities and delivering outcomes? And then I'd also like um, you to come in on Julian's question on using the kind of performance tracker method to give the electorate a better sense of what it is they're voting for. So what comes next? So, so I think the, sort of the end of new public management has been heralded for some time, and that kind of is representative of... Or, includes a lot of the techniques that we've been spoken about and indeed that Kistama criticised today in terms of kind of top-down targets and accountability, use of competition, service user choice, uh, inspections, etc. to drive up performance. So I think we are certainly moving away from the perhaps the cruder forms of that and clearly there are now some competing ideas about how to do that better with a kind of particular focus on uh, devolving powers and responsibilities, more kind of horizontal forms of accountability uh, rather than vertical. And I think we are 
moving in that direction? I think I would say that it's kind of the Keir Starmer approach set out in the missions today was more sort of new public management evolved uh, rather than something completely new. So I think, you know, it talked about missions with identifiable goals uh, with timelines, which are targets uh, broadly, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. Uh, and it talked about ensuring that kind of different parts of government aren't too siloed and are collaborating. But to be honest, that's broadly where we got to at the end of the Labour years and that we had public services agreements that there were from when they were introduced that we had a smaller number of them almost all of them were cross-cutting in nature and you had the kind of infrastructure around the centre of government to try and deliver on those which I, I think is broadly where we seem to be getting back to and that's actually not a million miles away from where the current government is with its outcome delivery plans and I, I think it, building on those would be a, a good idea even if they call them something different. So I, I think we're hopefully trying to take the best from new public management because some of it did work but not completely scrapping it because it absolutely did have some unintended and some negative consequences but there are positive things we can take from it. Uh, in terms of Julian's uh, question, so yes I mean Absolutely, that was a kind of the intention of uh, Performance Tracker um, when you established it, uh, to uh, ensure that there was a, a kind of a clear picture and clarity about what people would be voting for and the kind of the implications of different spending decisions. It would be great if the government was doing that itself and was being more transparent. I think there has been some improvement in the kind of the work that is done in the Treasury to think the Treasury is thinking much more about outcomes uh, than it was uh, previously, which is a, a really positive development. Mm -hmm. I think there's a question about whether we could expect the government itself to be clear about what the implications of voting for it uh, will be uh, in the future. But again, picking up on what um, Keir Starmer announced today, he talked in there about kind of increased accountability through transparency. And I think that would be very, very positive. So at the moment, uh, the government's outcome delivery plans, which have kind of clear objectives, and actually there is some transparency because they say, these are the metrics you can hold us to account on, and here is where you can access the, that publicly available data. Unfortunately, they don't say, and this is the target we are aiming for by this date, and this is the milestones we would expect to hit uh, in the meantime if we were on target for that and also you need to go and analyze all the data yourself there's not one place where you can, a dashboard where you can see how government's doing so I think you could there's a, there's the kind of the foundation for it that a new government could build on but yeah transparency through data is probably the best way of doing that thank you Aileen, I want to come to you now. I wonder if we, you could pick up Nadine's question yep. on whether it's time for a rethink about the relationship between central government um, and other actors and also the question on variation. Yeah, sure. The, <clears throat> yeah, the question of what gets done centrally and what gets done locally is, has been bedeviling uh, both sides of the argument, if you like, since at least the Layfield Commission. Um, and without, I don't see any any reason, I don't think anyone's going to reform a royal commission to look at local government in some ways, I think it should. So the most successful examples of um, place-based thinking, like with the combined authorities, places like Greater Manchester, are where they have the most autonomy to be able to pool money locally and have some, uh, and they're using their independent borrowing powers in particular ways with a long-term infrastructure plan. 
Um, so obviously it's, that would be something that would be really good to see that other local authorities are allowed to too. Rather than having a whole load of pots from the, you know, the High Streets Fund and the Future, uh, whatever it is, Fund Living Up Fund, <clears throat> all of which are really aimed at the same thing, they're about regenerating local areas. So if you could pull them uh, and, and contextualise them around your local area in a place-based way, that would be great. But when you look at the history of, of devolution over the past three, three years, uh, four years across Whitehall, what you see is um, halting progress, where you get somebody in who's keen on it, and then that person goes and the next person isn't. But also, um, patchy progress across Whitehall. So some departments simply won't engage. And if you're thinking about long-term investment in what's going to aid productivity and growth, then you need to be able to control the skills budgets locally. So you need to be able to persuade DFE and DWP that you, that you hold some of that money locally and use it for whatever it is that you want to do in your local area. And that has not been successful. And then even more difficult is if you want to bring in labour from outside the UK, you're then trying to deal with the Home Office. So I'd, honestly, anyway, I'll just leave that one there. Um, <laughs> that's going to be extremely difficult. I mean, we can't even, get, there isn't even a separate immigration policy for Scotland, for instance, which has historically been short of labour. The other question was about, um, so, so my answer is yes, it would, it would aid effectiveness, but it should be done more widely. Um, the, the other question was about variation in public services. Yeah, I mean, you always get a certain level of variation across any kind of outcome measure that you look at, or, or even output measure. And the question is, to what extent is uh, a variation acceptable um, in, in both public service terms and politically? Um, so it's for each service, I think, to decide what the range, range of acceptable performance is and what the service is. That sounds like a bit of a cop-out. But the difficulty you have is in something like adult social care, which has got national standards set down in an Act of Parliament, but is administered locally. So it's, it's a tricky one. Um, and I think it can only be decided by what people think is, is acceptable locally. And obviously, you know, a vast difference in A&E waiting times uh, is something that ought to be addressed by the management levels of the NHS that Nick says aren't there. Thank you. And then Stephen, I want to come back to you, particularly on Andy's question um, of what Labour's theory of change on public service reform is. Is it new public management evolved, as Nick said, or mm. do you see it differently? And particularly what is, you know, how does central government itself need to change and reform as part of that? Yeah, so if I briefly can, on Nadine's point, absolutely yes. I think the country's crying out for change in the way that government works. My frustration is that this government isn't an active government. There's so many things it could do by bringing forward legislation and it's failing to do so, which is why I'm really pleased by Gordon Brown's work on a new constitutional settlement, but also the work that Lisa and Andy is setting out around devolving power locally to communities. Uh, we've got to end this sort of needless micromanagement that we see from Whitehall in communities across our country. Um, with regards to the NHS, um, I mean, obviously, Wes will set that out in more detail in due course, but the two things that I think we've got to do is we've got to drive up um, uh, improvements in, in care, and that's got to be a relentless focus on outcomes in the NHS, but also we've got to deal with the issues around recruitment and retention, and that means obviously recruiting more doctors and, and nurses into the profession, and certainly my own patch, one of the challenges that we face around getting access to GPs and dentists is that uh, we need to see a medical school in Portsmouth to to create the workforce for the future. So I think it's got to be about a relentless focus on outcomes and outputs and uh, clear accountability in doing so. Brilliant. Thank you, Stephen. Right, we're already a couple of minutes past two, so I'm going to have to draw the event to a close there. Thank you to all our panellists for a brilliant discussion. 
Thank you to SIPFA uh, for making both the event and performance tracker more broadly possible. And of course, thank you most of all to the audience in the room and the audience online for a brilliant discussion. And thanks, everyone. Thank you.